in Amos chapter 7 this morning. Amos chapter 7, before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us this morning as we read about and learn about the visions that Amos received. Help us to understand them and to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Israelite era and the church era. Help us to see the connection, or better put, help us to see the connection from before your son came to after. And uh, Lord, open our hearts to receive your truth. In your name I pray. Amen. Amos chapter 7 begins a process of a change in chapter 7 into chapter 8. Uh, what I mean by the change is up to this point in time, Amos has been presenting messages, preaching messages. And he's done a series of them so far, a series of four of them so far. And now everything changes as we go into chapter 7 because he's no longer preaching messages per se at this point in chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Quite to the contrary, he begins to receive visions from God. And as he receives visions from God, he presents those visions to the people. And um, the visions are kind of intriguing. Uh, they're not that hard to understand if we slow down and think about them, but at the same time, they're very, very important. So we're going to look at four out of the five visions that Amos receives this morning to the ten northern tribes that have been called Israel, also called Joseph, also called Jacob. And today also called, anybody know? Isaac. Um, but all those are referring to uh, the ten northern tribes called Israel. Let's read through chapter 7, and then we'll walk our way through the four visions that are presented. We're saving the fifth vision for next week, Lord willing. We're starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. This is what the Lord God showed me. Amos is speaking, of course. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and had devoured the great deep and was eating of the land. Then I said, O oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Verse 7, this is what the Lord showed me, or this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing with a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I said, or and I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never pass by them. I will never again pass by them. 
the high places of Isaac shall be made desperate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Verse 10, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away from the land of, I'm sorry, away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. We, this should not be new to us, but Isaiah chapter seven—I'm sorry, Amos chapter seven—is a horrifying chapter, as was chapters one through six. We've seen it over and over and over. God is unrelenting in His statements about the ten northern tribes of Israel. He's unrelenting in His declarations. He's unrelenting in His declarations, specifically of condemnation. Justice, wrath. And as I said, there are four visions that are presented here. We're going to speed through the first two relatively quickly. And the reason why you've already seen it, if you listened at all, is because God says He's not going to do these things that are in the vision. But listen to it again. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was a latter growth after the king's mowings. When he had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, we'll just stop there real quick. This first vision of God to Amos is an interesting vision. The vision is basically, uh, and for us today, this may not make a whole lot of sense initially, but it will as we talk through it. In the vision that Amos has, he sees something happening. And what's happening is locusts are coming upon the land. They're coming out of the ground. They're coming upon the land. But in the vision, it's interesting. The timing of it all is very interesting because in, in, in the ten northern tribes of Israel, in the two southern tribes of Judah, it was this way as well. Most countries were this way. You had, at least in the Middle East, you had a planting, the first planting in the early season, and when that planting would come up and reach maturity and it'd be harvest time, you would harvest it. And when you'd harvest it, that 
that you harvest, the product that you harvest didn't belong to you. All of the first harvest all went to the king. It was a tax. It all went to the king. You kept none of it. You got the second. It wasn't that the second was, was lesser. It's just you got the second because the king took the first so that he could sell it and he could uh, feed his uh, horses and cattle and oxen, weapons of war, whatever the case may be. So the first went to the king, and the second one the people could keep for themselves. Well, in the storyline, in the first vision, it's as they're harv- as they just finish the harvest, the first harvest, that is the king's getting the first harvest, just as the first harvest is done, and the, and the plantings for the second harvest are just starting to come up. What happens? The locusts come. They come out of the ground and they descend all over the ten northern tribes. All over the land. And as the locusts come, they begin to what? They eat it all. That's the picture. Now, in order to understand this a little more crucially, it's really important that we understand what's going on here. In that day, if you lost the second harvest, like completely... You're done. Because they don't have the ability to store from year to year like that. You can store some, but you really can't store much. And like unlike what happened in Egypt with Joseph, they could plan because God said what? Do this, and here's how. And so they did it. They were able to store for seven years to get through a famine, right? But there's nothing here about, I'm telling you this is going to happen in seven years, just their stories. Quite to the contrary, the picture is it's happening right away. So there's no storage. So basically what God is saying to through this vision to Amos is this idea that when the locusts come and descend, they will be absolutely wiped out in every way. For all intents and purposes, Israel as it would be known would cease to exist. And the reason why is for Israel to survive at all, they would have to do something really dramatic. What would they have to do? Here's what they would have to do. They would have to go to another country, and they could not go to Judah, because Judah's only two tribes. Israel's ten tribes. So they couldn't depend upon Judah. They would have to go to another country, most likely Syria to the north. And who is Syria? Syria. No, uh, no, not Assyria yet. Syria. Who's Syria? It's their closest enemy. Can't go to Syria, but they'd have to go. They could go to Syria and say, "We need help. We submit to you." And most likely, Assyria would be the place they would have to go. So what they would end up doing is they'd have to end up going to Syria and saying to Syria, "We wish to become what is called your vassal." You may have heard me talk about this a long time ago. We wish to become your vassal. If Syria would be willing, they would say, we'll be your suzerain, that is your sovereign, and you'll be our vassal, which would mean you would be what? Our slaves. And we will preserve you. 
On the other hand, Syria, you wouldn't know until they agreed to it. Syria could look at it and say, are you kidding? No, we'd rather just have your land. And who would stop them? <coughs> Nobody. So it's a dire vision that Amos brings to, uh, that God brings to Amos and Amos brings to the people as he explains it. Because this is actually him proclaiming the visions he's already received. So Amos, in effect, is declaring the end in this first vision, the end of Israel, the ten northern tribes. Verse 2, when they had finished eating the grass, I said, Amos is saying to the hearers, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. Please forgive who? Israel. Why is he saying this? Because they have neglected their God. They have neglected his law. They have, they have ignored and they have worshipped syncretistically God, supposedly, as well as many other gods. And so Amos is begging God to forgive. And then he says, how can Jacob stand? And the obvious answer is, they can't. And then, interestingly enough, what does Amos say to God? He, that is Jacob, representing the ten northern tribes, he is so, what? Small. What is Israel's view about themselves? They're big. They're powerful. They're secure. They're prosperous. And Amos says to God, oh, God, please forgive them. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. See, their view of themselves was way, way too big. Verse 3, interestingly, God does not say in verse 3, Amos does not present God as saying what? The Lord then forgave. Doesn't say that, does it? He said, oh God, please forgive. Verse 2. And then Amos records, the Lord relented. Very different statement. The Lord relented concerning this and said, it shall not be. I remember, it's just a vision at this point. The Lord relented and said, it won't be that. Verse 4. That's vision number one. This is what the Lord God showed me. Again, he's speaking to the people. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold. By the way, can I just throw it on the side? It is interesting. Nowhere does Amos or any other, just want to throw this out, for you to chew on. Nowhere does Amos or any other prophet go on to prove in any way, form, or fashion that it's really from the Lord. Which is very interesting. They just say the Lord God showed me. That's a freebie. Just want you to chew on that because I think that that point is very important in the grand scheme of things overall to reading scriptures. Getting back to verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. What's, he, what's Amos talking about? Okay, so God then gave me a second vision. And here's what the second vision was all about. And what he's get, trying to get across, and the people in Amos day would have gotten this. In God's second vision to me, what he sent instead is drought caused by great, great heat. What do you think that is? Great heat would be what? From the 
Sun. Sun. Heat went right through the roof. You know, instead of being a, a nice balmy mid-80s and raining occasionally for water to come and water the earth, quite to the contrary, in God's second vision to Amos, there's a judgment by fire and devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. What's happening here? Well, a couple things. The, the, the sun is beating down unrelentingly, day after day after day, unrelenting heat. I would submit to you, unrelenting heat like he's describing, wouldn't surprise me, like Death Valley. Anybody here ever been to Death Valley? I've always wanted to go there. I've never been there. Very little grows there. Have you been there, Jim? Okay. Um, very little grows there. It's sand, rock. The temperatures can get over 130 degrees. They actually have an ultramarathon freebie. They actually have an ultramarathon that runs through Death Valley. Every year it's 176 miles. And uh, the people have to run the white lines. Because <coughs> they don't, guess what happens? Their shoes burn up. They melt. That's how brutal it is. But get the picture. Unrelenting heat from the sun. No moisture. No rain. No clouds. Unrelenting day after day. Week after week. Month after month. What begins to happen right away? There's no water. And if there, it's not raining, and if it's not raining, and it's super heat, what's happening to the water that's there in lakes, rivers, that type of thing? It all begins to evaporate. Now, if you've ever been, this is really important, because if you've ever been to the, the area that's now, that we refer to as the Ten Northern Tribes, generally speaking, it's a very fertile area. Unlike the south, which isn't as fertile, the north is really fertile. It's beautiful. Around Galilee, it's amazing. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. But after a little bit, you know what begins to happen up there? Jordan River starts drying up. You know, the Jordan River starts drying up. Guess what happens to the Sea of Galilee? It dries up as well. There's no water flowing into it. It's all evaporating. And then all the tributaries, obviously, first of all, all the tributaries dry up, right? Unrelated. You can't use the Mediterranean water. Why? Salt. Because it's salt. Can't use that. Can't drink that. Can't water with it. Can't do anything. So the water disappears, and the heat's going through the roof, and then all the plants, obviously with no water and unrelenting heat, they begin to dry up. But the description here says what? It's worse than that, because what happens, it says, judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. The great deep is referring all the way down to the roots. Like, this is worse than the first one, isn't it? Because the first one, what do you have? You have locusts. Well, once all the plants are gone, what, where do the locusts go? They die or leave. But in this one, the death of the land is so complete that the result is the next year, even if the, the, the heat ceases and it rains, nothing what? Grows. Nothing grows. It turns into a desert. 
The only hope is that perhaps somehow they are able to find plants somewhere else and bring them back. What does that mean again? They got to go somewhere to get it. And where are they going to go? Now we're back to Syria again. Right? So it's worse even than the first one. Because you know as well as I do, unlike the first one, the first one is all about starving, right? Because no plants. The second one, how would you like to live in a place that's running up in the 130s every day? How do you think you'd survive? How many people do you think would die? Many, thousands, tens of thousands of people would die. Verse 5, then I said, oh Lord God, please cease. It's interesting that Amos doesn't turn to forgive, does he? After God said he relented the first time, did not forgive, he the second time says, oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? Again, he is so small. And then for the second time, verse 6, the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. And then from there we come to verse 7 and following, 7 through 9. And there's a third vision. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of, of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. I called Ken this week. Yesterday, as a matter of fact, right, Ken? Called him yesterday. I said, Ken, you certainly got to have a plumb line and a plumb bob, don't you? And he said, yeah, you know what this is, right, Jim? You certainly have to have one. He said, I do. In fact, I just used it this week. And uh, I said, can I borrow? He said, why? I said, because the message is I need it, because it mentions plumb lines. Ken said something really interesting to me, and I'm going to tell you his story briefly. I hope I get it right. Ken said, yeah, I had to use one this week. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, we were installing a cabinet, a cabinet, right? Big cabinet. He said, my laser out, and I had the levels out, and we were trying to get it all lined up, and for whatever reason, nothing was working right. Nothing was working correctly. All the modern technology, right? Lasers, levels, and nothing was right. And so Ken said, Clay, Go get me, what? The plumb bob and the plumb line. And you know what he said to him? He said, because you know what? The plumb line is never wrong. It's never wrong. It always tells the truth. It always is accurate. And you used it, right? And it worked. And it lined everything up, didn't it? This is what a plumb line is. What does God say in his vision? It does swing some, but you get the point. And Ken said to me this morning, he said, he said, Clay asked him, well, what about if it's windy? How does it work then? He said, bigger plumb, bigger plumb bob. Heavier plumb bob. 
Get a big enough plumb bob, the wind won't affect it. And it'll work. <clears throat> Again, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall with a plumb line. With a plumb line in his hand. And unlike you and I, his hand's pretty steady. Right? And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. What is he saying? I am checking, this is the point, I am checking the people's alignment. What do you call it? Vertical. Um, plumb. I'm checking their plumb. That's what it's called. They're vertical. To see if they're plumb. Well, what is the plumb line? Because he doesn't explain what the plumb line is here. What's the plumb line? Not really. That's a good, that's a good thought. It's, it's, it's close. You know what the plumb line is? It's the law. The plumb line is the law. He said, I am checking how they measure up, because that's what God declared. If you want to know me, if you want to know who I am and what I stand for and what's valuable to me, what's important, here's the law. Isn't that the point? Here's the law. And here he is at the other end after how many centuries of their disobedience, he is saying, I am standing I, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of the people Israel. I'm checking to see if they are vertical or not. Vertical meaning in alignment. Are they bulging? Is it straight? Is it on an angle? Now today, we don't, you don't use plumb lines very often, do you? Once in a while, but not very often. In that day, they didn't have levels. They didn't have lasers. All they had was this. This is it. And they built impressive walls, didn't they? When, when I had some stonework done in my basement uh, for, the, uh, uh, for, the, for the fireplace downstairs, the guy put a plumb line up to make sure the stones were lined up properly. And they built impressive walls. Jericho was an impressive wall. That was the Canaanites' wall. But you go to Jerusalem, even to this day, and you find the remnants of the uh, of the wall standing there. You know how it was built? Right here. You know how the pyramids were built? Right here. Impressive. God said, I'm standing in the midst of the people with a plumb line, and his plumb line is the law. How do they measure up? How does it look? How do they match up to that line? And the result of him measuring is what? I will never again pass by them. It's a stunning statement. He's saying, I have measured them, and they haven't measured up. Or to quote, meanie, meanie, 
tackle you for sin. This wasn't a plumb line, it was a scale. This is what God said to the Babylonians. You've been weighed in the, in the scale and found what? Wanting. And that night, that very night, what happened? They were overrun. God's saying the same thing to Israel. I've lined you up according to the plumb line. And you haven't lined up. I will never pass in your midst again. What does that mean? It means there's only one thing left. Because if, if there's a wall being that's up and you go and, and you measure it, if you're going to like attach something else to the wall, and the first thing you do is bring a plumb line, right? Because you want to make sure that's plumb before you add to it, right? You measure it, like, that's not close. I can't do anything with that. Correct? I can't do anything. How do you straighten a stone wall that's 25 feet thick? How do you do that? There's only one thing to do to that wall, isn't there? And what's the one thing, Jim? Tear it down. That's the only thing left to do. And that's what he means when he says... I will never pass by them again. Their existence, in other words, is over. Just like that wall. It's good for nothing and to be torn down. And then he explains it even more in depth in verse 9. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The high places are referring to all the idolatrous worship. They're all going to be torn down. They're all going to be made desolate. And then he goes over and says, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be what? Laid waste. Sanctuaries are referring to the Yahweh worship places. They will be, it says laid waste. What do you think that means? Destroyed. They don't match up to the plumb. So if they don't match up to the plumb, the only thing left is to tear it down. And so God says they will be torn down. They'll be laid waste. And then lastly, he says in verse 9, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. That's the king. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. And if God is going to wage war against Jeroboam, and that means Jeroboam leading the whole country. If God is bringing war against Jeroboam, the country, the ten northern tribes, what does that mean? That means Jeroboam is going to lose and complete destruction is going to entail, is going to come. That's the, the, the uh, third vision. Now, he goes on in verse 10, and this is where it gets really intriguing. We're moving temporarily outside of the visions. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, and you can understand when he says the priest of Bethel, it's the chief priest or the highest of priests in Bethel. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, and this is where it gets really interesting. Amos has what? Conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. If you are wondering, is Amaziah a good guy? He is not. 
He brings part of the message. He doesn't bring the whole message. What's the whole message? It's very clear. This, verse 7, is what he, God, showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. This is a message, and we saw it again in the first one. This is what the Lord God showed me. Verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. This is a message from God, not Amos. Amaziah goes to the king, the chief priest of Bethel, the guy who's supposed to be pointing people to God, including Jeroboam. And he, quite to the contrary, totally corrupts the message of Amos to say Amos is conspiring against you, not God. Amos is conspiring against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. What is he talking about? People, if, he, if we allow him to continue to speak, people will, some people will what? Begin to hear and revolt. That's what, that's what Amaziah is saying. Some, and it happened. There's, there's several in the scriptures re, re, uh, recording events, recorded events where a prophet spoke and people revolted because of what the prophet said. What is Amaziah concerned with? God and his kingdom or Jeroboam and his kingdom? Jeroboam and his kingdom. He's absolutely fixed upon Jeroboam and his kingdom. And so he presents what is, for all intents and purposes, a lie. Although the points are correct, aren't they? Jeroboam will die with a sword. That's part of it, isn't it? And Israel will go in exile. That's part of it, isn't it? But it's from God, not Amos. And then Amaziah, after he goes to the, to the king, Jeroboam, comes and speaks to Amos. And this becomes even more telling. He comes to Amos and says, Oh, seer. And by the way, that can or cannot be a derogatory term. Prophets were oftentimes called seers. But it is oftentimes used in a derogatory, um, belittling way. Like, I don't trust your word type of way. It's clear that that's what Jeroboam is doing. And Amaziah said to Amos, Oh, seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Now, Amaziah knows he's from Judah. Go home, he's telling him. Go home. And then he says, and eat bread there. And this is where it becomes revealed that he's looking at, 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 at Amos as not a real prophet and is mocking him when he says, oh, seer, because there were prophets everywhere through Judah and people who called themselves prophets everywhere in Judah and Israel who were making all sorts of claims and all sorts of statements. And what they were doing is trying to get people who would accept their prophecies and the way they'd get them to prophesy, people would actually give them bread or food, paltry things. And basically they were living in a subsistence type of way. It was a way to manipulate manipulative people to get a little bit of food and a little bit of existence. So people were doing this rather than hard work and getting, uh, getting their way by working hard. And what he does, he accuses Amos of being one of those manipulative, thieving, fake prophets. 
Go eat bread there. There's no evidence he ever took bread from the people and asked for bread in order to get a prophecy. Was there? Nothing in here about that. O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel. Why? Notice he doesn't say it because it belongs to Yahweh. It's his place. That's not what he says, does he? Quite to the contrary, Amaziah says, but never again prophesy Bethel, for it is the king's, what? Sanctuary. Sanctuary. Really? Really? Bethel means what again? House of God. House of God. God. House of Yahweh. Or house of Elohim. It is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. The Jeroboam's father established the kingdom, established the temple there in Bethel in the beginning to give legitimacy to the ten northern tribes after they separated from uh, the two southern tribes. And he's saying it's the temple of the kingdom, implying we are legitimate. But it's the king's sanctuary, and it's the temple of the kingdom. Amos responds, defends himself temporarily. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. You accused me of being a seer, and I'm ripping people off, and I'm just doing it for profit. And he says, no, 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 you missed the whole point. I was no prophet, nor prophet's son. Oftentimes, prophet's sons became prophets in the prophet schools, because there were a lot of prophet schools around. But I was a herdsman. And a dresser of sycamore figs. I had a profitable business. Life was good for me. I was doing well. Verse 15. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Basically, he, he shoots him down in his argument that he's not a true prophet. And what does he do next? Verse 16. Now... Therefore, you, Amaziah, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife will be a prostitute in the city, and your son and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line, and you yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from this land. It's interesting what Amos says to Amaziah. In effect, first of all, broad brushed, in effect, what God is saying to Amos in this fourth vision is this Amaziah, you had a chance. You had a chance. You could have been one of the hundred, or one of the ten, or the one in the innermost part of the house. Right? When ten died. You had a chance. You could have been one of those. But you have chosen to corrupt the message of God. As a result, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. You know what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. This is much bigger than just your wife will prostitute herself. And by the way, physically speaking, the point is, life is going to get so tough that the only hope you have of surviving, you and your family have of surviving, is if your wife goes out and what? 
prostitutes herself. Because here's the deal. Since Amaziah is not really preaching the truth, since Amaziah is rejecting the truth, when light, hard times come, what do people do? Are they going to bring the offerings to the Lord? Well, no. So there's no income for Amaziah. And since there's no income for Amaziah, he only has one option. And the implication, although it doesn't say this, the implication is that Amaziah most likely will send his wife out, the high priest will send his wife out to prostitute herself, to get something so they can live. But more importantly, what God is saying to Amos is, you, Amaziah, have prostituted yourself to the ten northern tribes into Jeroboam and rejected your groom. And so your wife is going to live that out in, in physical reality before your eyes. You've done it spiritually. Your wife is going to live it out physically. And your sons and daughters, of course, will die by the sword. You think you put your trust in the kingdom you live in. You put your trust in your king. By the way, can I just say this as an aside, but it's an important aside? How many Christians are doing that today? It's scary to think about. You don't believe it. All you got to do is get on Facebook and you can see it everywhere. You put your faith in your king. You put your faith in your country. Your faith belonged with your God. My goodness, what has your kingdom done? The implication is, what has your kingdom done? What has your king done for you in comparison, in contrast to what your true king has done? Yahweh. He's the one. This is the implication. He's the one who has rescued you out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's the one who led you through the wilderness. He's the one who protected you so that your, your uh, clothes wouldn't wear out. He's the one who fed you, provided for you. He's the one who gave you a land that was not your own, that you did not purchase. He's the one who gave you houses that were already built. He's the one who gave you land that already had crops growing in it and barns that already had had full were full of harvested things. He's the one who gave you oxen and all the rest of the animals on the land. You didn't do that. He gave it all to you. And guided you ever since. And cared for you ever since. And here you are putting your trust in something else. And so, when the thing you trust in is destroyed, and it will be, because I will never pass this way again from my people. When the thing you trust in is destroyed, your sons and your daughters will be destroyed with them. And then he goes on and says, your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. It's not talking about this. Just be aware. 
That's not talking about this. When he says a measuring line, this is not it. In our, if you go back, if you ever, if you have a old land, you probably, Jim, in, in your land, if you look at it, you'd probably find that it would talk about the measuring in that day. It probably talked about uh, rods or chains. Um, if you have old land, your, your land probably talks about the same thing. If you look at your deed, it probably talks about rods and chains. In that day, they measured not with rods and chains. They measured with lines. The, the length of lines. And they had all different lengths uh, listed. In fact, the scriptures talk about it a little more specifically elsewhere. And what does he say? You put your trust in your king. You put your trust in your, your kingdom. Not in God's kingdom. Here's what's going to happen. Judgment is coming. Wife will be a prostitute in the midst of the, of the judgment. And when the judgment is completed, your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. And the very land that you think that you're tied to, that you're linked to, that you're dependent on, it's going to be taken from you and divided up. And the implication is in your presence. The idea is you'll be there and you will observe before you go off to exile. You will watch them take your land and divide it up and give it to somebody else. They'll be measured out and given elsewhere. The very things you trusted, the very things you hoped for, the very things your hope is in, God said to, the, to, 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 um, to Amaziah, and in effect to all of the ten northern tribes, this is what will happen. And Israel will surely go into exile away from its land. And in 722 B.C., that's exactly what happened. God raised up the Assyrian the Assyrians, which were a whole lot worse than, than the country they feared at this point, Syria. He rose up the Assyrians and they came down, they wiped out Syria, and after wiping out Syria, the next stop, the very next stop was the ten northern tribes. And they were wiped out horrifically. And that brings us to the end of the chapter. What do we do in this chapter? It's horrifying, isn't it? Isn't it? Horrifying. And once again, it's very easy to look at the chapter. We've talked about this in the past. I want to be more specific this time. But once again, it's very easy to look at this chapter and say, yeah, but Steve, we're talking about the Old Testament. I get that. But we live on the other side of Christ's coming, Christ's birth, his life. His death that we'll be celebrating in just a little bit. And His resurrection, we live on the opposite side of that. It is now a different era. We are now living in the already not yet time frame where our sins have been forgiven. It's been paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. And if we've received Him to be our Savior, then we're, we are heaven bound and it doesn't apply to us anymore. And I say, oh, contraire. As we said last week and several weeks before that, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let me make it as clear as I possibly can. There is a plumb line. There is. God has not changed. There is a plumb line. And that plumb line still exists. And it is the law of God. It always has been, and it always will be. 
The plumb line still is there. And the picture that is being presented of God bringing a plumb line among his people still exists. It was stated about the ten northern tribes. But it still exists. And it's still happening. This vision that God gave Amos is not merely a one-moment vision. There is still a vision. I'm sorry, there is still a vision. And it is the law. And there's going to be a day when the plumb line is going to be held up to you and I. Do you realize that? The scriptures talk about judgment. And we like to think that there is no judgment for believers, but there is. The scriptures are very clear about that. And may I quote that passage real briefly to introduce it. God says, in that day there will be many that say what? Lord, Lord, and he will take the plumb line. And they won't pass. They won't pass the plumb line test. Can I ask you a question? How is it possible? You don't have to answer this. How is it possible that any of us can? How many of you have done well with the law? What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 3? According to the law, blameless. So he said in Philippians chapter 3. And yet his view is what? I consider it all what? It's all dung or rubbish. Right? In comparison to what? Knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. Here's the deal. As we look at this passage, chapter 7 of Amos, and chapters 1 through 6, here's the deal. Here's the perspective in this day and age. There's a plumb line. There is. And there's coming a day when the plumb line is going to be laid on you and I. If you and I have Christ's righteousness, what do you think the plumb line is going to say? What do you think? If we have Christ, if we've been given Christ's righteousness, what's the plumb line going to say? It's going to say what? Plumb. It's going to say plumb, isn't it? Isn't it? If we have Christ's righteousness, it's going to say, God's going to look at it and say, plumb. And after he looks at it and says plumb, he's going to say what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom I've prepared for you. Right? That's what he's going to say. Not because you did so well with the law, but because Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. For those who claim to be believers who really aren't, but claim to be, the plumb line also is held up. And God looks at it. And you know what he says? I will never pass by you again. I will never pass by you again. What does that mean? It means judgment. Hell. Eternal hellfire. I will never pass. Because the Bible says after death comes the judgment. But for those who belong to him, they escape the second death, right? 
Revelation. They escape the second death. Eternal damnation. Why? Because they have Christ. They have the righteousness of Christ. So here's the question. Because it's easy to say I have Christ, isn't it? Isn't it? It's easy to say I have Christ's righteousness, isn't it? The question before us is, are you willing to gamble that? Are you really willing to risk that? By being flippant about if you really have Christ's righteousness or not. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? And the reason why I ask the question, if I may read the last two songs we sang, I know they're not inspired, but I want you to listen to them because they're really rich. The glory of the cross. What wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, fled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified your son rejoice around the throne. What righteousness was there revealed that sets the guilty free, that justifies ungodly men and calls the filthy clean, a righteousness that proved to all your justice has been met and holy wrath was satisfied through one atoning death. What mercy now has been proclaimed for those who would believe. A love incomprehensible our minds could not conceive. A mercy that forgives my sin and makes me like your son. And now I'm loved forevermore because of what you've done. And the chorus. This is the response to that truth of someone who really has received the truth. And oh, the glory of the cross. Not the shame. You see, those who truly receive this are not ashamed. Quite to the contrary, it's their glory. Oh, the glory of the cross that you would send your son for us. What is the response of someone who's truly received Christ's righteousness? I gladly what? Count my life is lost that I might come to know the glory the glory of the cross that's what it means to receive Christ's righteousness that we find ourselves saying my life serious in light of what Christ has done my life is nothing I gladly not miserably I gladly that's what Paul says doesn't he I gladly count my life as lost that I might come to know the glory of the cross. I just want to know Christ. And then the other song. Gladly would I leave behind me all the pleasures I have known. Really? Does that sound like you? I'm just curious. I know the song's not inspired. Is that sound like you? Does that sound like me? Does it? Important question. Gladly would I leave all the pleasure behind me, all the pleasure I have known to what? Pursue surpassing treasures at the throne of God the Son. <laughs> Does that sound like us? Leave all the pleasures behind that I might 
pursue the passing pleasure treasures? That sounds like Moses in chapter 11 of Hebrews, doesn't it? Give all the riches of Egypt because he considered the riches of Christ far greater. Worthy of unending worship, love and loveliness is he. By his precious death were many from the jaws of death set free. Gladly would I give to Jesus all affection, everything. For the washing of his mercy makes my ransomed heart to sing. You find that your ransomed heart just wants to sing of his great mercy? Really? Do you? Gladly would I give to Jesus all affection, everything. Is that true? Holy, holy is the chorus rising up from those who see. Christ exalted, bright and burning, full of power and purity. Does that rise up from us ever and regularly? Or is it possible that we don't see? Gladly would I flee temptations, for their trouble fill my life. This ties into Andrew's confession, doesn't it? it? Ties directly into the confession he gave out of Psalm 19. The psalmist says, oh God, I have presumptuous sin. Rescue me that they may not dominate me. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like me? Gladly would I flee temptations, for their troubles fill my life. Turn and seek my God and Savior for his goodness satisfies. We find in him the satisfaction of our souls? Or do we still find the presumptuous sins, our satisfaction? And all the things, the cares of this world and the kingdom that we live in. Earthly treasures, all are passing. Is that our mindset? Thieves break in and rust destroys, but in God are awesome splendor, love, and everlasting joys. Gladly would I give to Jesus all affection, everything, for the washing of his mercy makes my ransom heart to sing. Where else can I go? The contrast is nothing else does this. Nothing else provides this. Where else can I go? Jesus, you're the one that I was made to know. What else can I do? Jesus, you're my all. I gladly run to you. It's really easy, isn't it, to say that I'm saved? It's very easy to say that I'm heaven-bound. It's really easy to say that. The question is, did our life say that? Because that's what the Spirit does in his, in his children's life. I'm not making any accusations. I'm just asking a really important question. This is what the Spirit does. And I would submit to you that if he's powerful enough to take us from death to life, he's powerful enough to do this. So it's easy to say, yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm redeemed. Yes, I'm heaven-bound. Can I just ask you, what will the plumb line say? What will it say? About me. About you. 
because like in Amos's day for the ten northern tribes, a plumb line was coming. In the same way, it is for all people today as well, and especially the people who claim to be the people of God. I want to remind you, Amos is speaking to God's covenant people. It's very easy to say, ah, Steve, come on. The plumb line's for the lost. No, it's for those who claim to be saved but may not be. And it's also for the saved. But for the saved, they will be. Christ is completely plumb. Amen? But there will be many in that day who will say, Lord, Lord. Broad is the way. It's easy, it's easy to be deceived. But the plumb line can? You tell me. The plumb line's never deceived, is it? The plumb line is never ever deceived. Unlike what some theologians say, no one is going to sneak by this. Ever. Not trying to scare us, but in a way, yes. The simple reality is we have much to rejoice over if we have Christ's righteousness. Amen? But if we don't have Christ's righteousness and are deceived, just like Amaziah was, God's people, Just like the children of, of Israel, the ten other tribes were absolutely deceived. Just like Jeroboam was absolutely deceived. Just like most of the people out in the wilderness were absolutely deceived. Just like all people, all time, that claim to be God's covenant people, the vast majority were deceived. The plumb line is never deceived. If we are in Christ, we are new creatures. And when we read these songs, what new creatures look like. Not perfect. No. Not saying that. Paul made that clear. But new creatures in Christ look different. And they worship their king. And they love their king. And they're after a different king. Where else can I go? What else can I do but to run to you? Amen? Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, help us. As we said last week, you always examine the heart before you examine the offering. And today, with the plumb line, we find ourselves, I hope we all find ourselves, Asking you to examine our heart today and reveal to us today where we stand before the plumb line comes. <coughs> Help us not to be like Amaziah and ignoring such an important message. Help us not to be like the ten northern tribes who are lulled to sleep and not God's people. Help us. Help us to know you. Help us to be people who rejoice in our God our Savior.
satisfaction.